Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, September 18th, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Jude's final verses contain an interesting pivot from men to God. The major portion of Jude's epistle is dedicated to instructions to believers. Jude wants his audience to, quote, contend for the faith, and to, quote, build yourselves up in the faith, and to, quote again, keep yourselves in the love of God, and the like. All these commands are genuine, and they are to be obeyed by believers, but we must remember that any ability to keep these commands is rooted in the fact that we have previously been changed by God through salvation. The Bible is very clear on this issue, even as many individual Christians are very uncomfortable with its assertions. Scripture teaches us that devoid of the power of God and the resulting presence of the indwelling Spirit in salvation, man is naturally and completely sinful and therefore incapable of meaningful obedience. The point, then, is that Jude is assuming something throughout the entirety of his letter. Jude is assuming that he is speaking to believers who have experienced such a transformation and who are in possession of the Spirit to continue his work. I point this out because there is a tendency amongst men to put the cart before the horse. Most false religions teach that you do something prior to salvation, and this act or process of merit is what earns the favor of God. This obviously assumes that man can do something to earn God's grace, but this is simply not the biblical reality. Instead, the Bible teaches that we are hopelessly depraved, and this necessitates God's working on our behalf. While this might sound like bad news, my hope this week is to illuminate these truths for you so that you can see how wonderfully liberating these truths are to those who believe. The first piece of evidence that I would present to you to consider is the biblical teaching on the universality of sin. Stated simply, the Bible tells us that all of us are guilty of transgression. This matters for a myriad of reasons, but perhaps most importantly, this matters as it relates to the way we see and divide people in the world. You see, the world seems to have multiple categories of natural people. There are good people or moral people, and then there are bad people. The assumption is often made that those who are good have nothing to fear in the presence of God, and those who are bad are deserving of the judgment they receive. Admittedly, good and bad are on somewhat of a sliding scale. We don't universally agree on this line, and I've rarely met a person that doesn't think he or she is on the right side of the line. Nevertheless, the larger truth is that these people dictate, by their character and outward actions, their eternal standing before the Lord. Is this thought biblical? Well, the simple answer is no. Today's text teaches us that all are guilty of sin, and no one in their natural unconverted state seeks after God. Absolutely every single person on the planet is naturally a rebel, pushing against the authority and lordship of Christ. No one naturally abides by his law, and no one is even capable of such an action. The point, then, is that there are no good people, not without divine intervention, and while this may appear to be bad news, and it most certainly can be if individuals don't move past this point, there is wonderful, far more glorious and calming news to follow for those who are allowed to see these things and repent. Point to Ponder, September 19th, Isaiah 53 and verse 6. 
I must admit that I hesitated to use this verse because the end of the verse spoils the grand crescendo of this week's devotions. Nevertheless, the teaching of the beginning of Isaiah 53.6 is so critical to our understanding of the natural state of man that I could not simply avoid writing a devotion on the topic. The Bible is intentional in all that it says and asserts. Being the very Word of God, we can trust that all of the Scripture's declarations are measured and true. This is important because it adds weight to universal statements such as the one that is found in Isaiah 53.6. When God says things like, quote, we all, we should know that God means all of us, literally. The Lord is not speaking in unclear or over-exaggerated generalities. He is speaking with candor and conviction about the state of humanity, every last one of us. The point that Isaiah is making is akin to the point Paul made for us yesterday, Specifically, Isaiah is pointing out the universal nature of sin, but this comprehensive reality is not neutral. The effect of our sin is catastrophic, and today's verse gives one reason why calamity awaits sinners. Specifically, Isaiah says that our sin causes us to, quote, go our own way. The point here is that sinners stray from the truth, blazing their own trail with the false assumptions that their new path will lead to joy and fulfillment, when in reality it leads to judgment and destruction, and all of us suffer from this condition. While it is true that we do freely choose these carnal outcomes, it is equally true that our choice to sin is bound up in our depraved condition. The sinful nature of the heart results, always and uniformly, in straying from the truth, which results in our running headlong into error. Without some intervention on God's part, every human being would choose condemnation because all of us stray from truth, and no one seeks the Lord in his or her natural condition. The problem, therefore, is not in a lack of outward instruction. The problem is in a heart that is so corrupted and enslaved by sin that it will not choose anything but sin in its present condition. Salvation is not a person autonomously choosing to think differently. It is a total transformation of the very being of a person whereby God alters our heart leading to a changed will and transformed mind which restores the ability and desire to do the right thing where the only craving that existed before was to pursue sinful pursuits. The importance of this will become clear, at least I hope it will become clearer, as we move through the week, but suffice it to say at this point that Scripture teaches us that there must be some sovereign superintending work of intervention that takes place in our hearts and minds if we will ever be redirected from the road of sin to the path of obedience. Someone must intervene. Someone must get in the way of our freedom of choice. Someone must change our hearts and minds that are naturally hell-bent, pun intended, if we have any hope of a future. Point to Ponder, September 20th, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Some would say that I was a bit too harsh yesterday in my assessment of fallen humanity. Is it really true that man only wanders from God? What about the good things that lost people accomplish? Is this not evidence of some inward ability on man's part to choose to do good in the Lord's sight? While we do not deny that the world is not as bad as it could be, and while we certainly affirm that many of the things that man has accomplished have objectively good outcomes, we must also be quick to add that all of these good things are tainted by man's sin. We are capable of morality, some level of ethics, and the like, but our desires in those things are not pure. We are aware that there is a natural law, but our love of the law, and more importantly, the lawgiver, does not exist. This leads us to another nail in the proverbial coffin, which is seen quite clearly in our text for today, as Paul tells us that lost men are, quote, dead in their trespasses and sins. What does he mean by dead? 
Clearly, he doesn't mean physically deceased. Lost men breathe and move and speak like saved men. They are physically alive, but they are spiritually corrupt. They simply do not have any desire, proclivity, nor sensitivity to the things of God. Man has no desire to know God, follow God, or obey God. Man is incapable of seeing God in his glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and man has no category for submitting to God in all that he does as this goes against his very nature. In that sense, the law of God and the things of God are dead to him, or, to put it in a more biblically faithful manner, he is dead to God and his truth. The problem, of course, with dead people is that they cannot bring themselves back to life. If man is dead to the things of God, he has no hope of making himself alive in God's kingdom. He is helpless. He is hopeless, and therefore he is desperately in need of someone, namely the Lord, to act upon him, thereby bringing him from death to life. We call this act of making a lost man spiritually alive regeneration. This term denotes the moment that God breathes life into the soul, rips the blinders from our previously dull eyes, and gives us a heart that desires him and wants to obey him. All of these things are supernatural, and they all result from God's initiative in salvation. When the Bible says that, quote, salvation is of the Lord, in Jonah 2.9, this is what the scripture means. God in Christ atoned for our sins, seeks us for salvation, reconciles us to the Father, indwells us with his spirit, and guides us through the rest of our lives. In all these things, God is the great initiator and mover. And this is good news, because if God is the one who does the seeking, saving, and sanctifying, our salvation will not fail. Point to Ponder, September 21st, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We have arrived at the great turning point of the gospel. This verse, and those like it, informs the reason behind our passionate praise of God. Some people think that an exaltation of man's ability saves God from seeming like a dictator. But the truth is that when we wrongly elevate man's ability to choose salvation, we minimize God's glory in choosing and redeeming us. The grammatical breakdown of this passage is quite simple. The main actor in this verse is only one, and that actor is our great God. You will notice that it is God who, quote, makes us alive in Christ. God is the one changing our status. Indeed, it is because of him and him alone that we who were once lost are now found. There are two attributes of God that become clearer when we consider our sinful, dead condition and his work of regeneration in salvation. The first is we see God's power. Who else could overcome the grip of sin in us? What other being in the universe could conquer the death that controlled our unwell souls? The answer is that no one and nothing is able to replicate what God accomplished, and this is one of the reasons why we praise Him. He deserves our praise because He has separated Himself from all others in salvation. The second attribute that becomes clear is God's love. We must remember that God made us alive even as the cause of our death was our sinful rebellion against Him. God did not look down and see His friends suffering. He looked down and saw the dreadful estate of those who were still His enemies. You may think that this is an extreme way to describe man, but you would be missing the fact that this is biblical language. Romans 5.10 tells us that we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, quote, while we were His enemies. What kind of majestic being would see all that we have done to thwart his right rule and still send his son to lay down his life for our redemption? What kind of God would desire reconciliation with such vile and rebellious people? Who else in the universe would go to the same lengths that Christ did to secure the salvation of people who hated him until they were changed? 
In all these things, God gains the glory, a glory that he undeniably deserves. I suppose I am perhaps belaboring the point, but I want to make it clear that salvation is indeed of the Lord, and that will matter as we pivot towards the peace that Jude desires for us to have upon finishing his little epistle. If we do not understand that it is God who guarantees our redemption and perseverance, then peace is fleeting. But when we understand that God is the one who orchestrates our salvation, then peace can flow like a river. Point to Ponder, September 22nd. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. I certainly pray that I have provided a good biblical basis for establishing the point that salvation is truly and solely of the Lord. Nevertheless, there is one more hill that we must conquer if we are going to ascend to the heights in order to behold the grace of God in Christ in the gospel. You see, some would look at the commands and exhortations given in Scripture, many of which are found in Jude's epistle and wrongly conclude that salvation might have been started by God, but it must be finished by men. Stated differently, there are some who would argue, or at least live, as if God began this good work, but it is up to you and to me to finish it. The logic is that God's commands are given to us as a guide or map, as it were, to lead us to our finish line, which is heaven. The idea, when further extrapolated, communicates this picture that God got the ball rolling, and to be fair, most would celebrate this fact, and now we must keep it both in motion and heading towards the right destination. The problem with this kind of thinking is twofold. First, it greatly overestimates our ability. As John MacArthur is famously quipped, if I could lose my salvation, I would. We are simply far too keen on our abilities at times, and in this case, our thoughts grossly overestimate our actual capabilities. Second, it misunderstands the function of these warnings. Warnings are not given to believers as a dividing line to sort those who will ultimately make it and those who are no longer qualified. Warnings serve a different function, but that's reserved for a devotion to follow. As we consider this issue for just a moment, we need to understand that a good exegete, a fancy word that just means a person who interprets scripture, must make sure that his or her conclusions fit with the rest of the Bible. The Bible does not contradict itself, and this means that our biblical beliefs must agree with other passages of Scripture. So when we read something that seems to flatly state the obvious, these words must be given a hearing and weight if we are going to rightly divide the word of truth. Today's text constitutes one of those places where the idea that we are somehow the determiner of our eternal state goes to die. You can see very clearly in this text that Paul attributes the work of sanctification to God in Christ as well. It is God who will, quote, finish what he began, and this is because salvation is of the Lord. Folks, we must be careful here in understanding that salvation is more than justification. When the Bible attributes salvation to the Lord, it doesn't just mean the moment God deems you righteous, as important as that moment is to a believer. Biblical salvation incorporates your growth in holiness, your perseverance to the end, and your ultimate glorification in eternity. Paul's desire is for his reader to understand that all these things are ultimately accomplished by God in Christ. He is the one that sees to it that you endure. He is the one who finishes the work of salvation in you, and this truth gives us great peace. If my salvation were ultimately up to me, I could not rest at night. I am so prone to wandering and unfaithfulness even still. The only source of hope I have is that God is not going to let me go. That he is a faithful and sovereign God will see to it that I am kept until the moment that I enter into his presence forever, and this gives great peace and rest. I hope that you see how nicely this all fits together. 
I've always been amazed that those who would attribute their salvation ultimately to their choice have any peace at all. If I can simply choose to follow God, can I simply choose to unfollow God? If my salvation is in my hands in the ultimate sense, how would I trust myself with such a responsibility? The answer is that I couldn't. There would be no peace because there is so much evidence that says I am unable to do even that which claim I desire to do. I have failed too much to give me peace, but my great God has never failed, and this gives me rest. Point to Ponder, September 23rd, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So, if we understand that it is ultimately God who accomplishes our salvation, what do we do with passages that quite clearly command me to do something? How do I understand commands if all this depends upon God? The answer is that we must understand that God's plan, His preserving power and His faithfulness are not bound up in some ethereal state, instead they take place through the means that He has ordained. If that is a bit too much of a theological word salad for you, let me say it more succinctly. God has ordained that the way He will accomplish His work of salvation, bringing it to completion, is through our Spirit-empowered obedience. Now, some may say, aha, a contradiction is afoot. How can a person claim yesterday that God alone is the cause of our persevering to the end and now say that God ordains my obedience? The answer is only an apparent issue, as it misunderstands the source of our obedience. But I get ahead of myself. We will get there, but not today. Today I want to deal with the other ditch that lurks as we attempt to navigate this narrow path to salvation. If one ditch is human autonomy, the idea that I am responsible for all of it, the other ditch is rote determinism, the idea that God does everything so I will be passive. As we stated yesterday, it is not appropriate for us to study the Bible and arrive at contradictory conclusions. We must understand that all the Bible fits together, and this includes passages that command us to action. So today, we see a clear command. We are to, quote, work out our own salvation. What does this mean? Well, the truth is that it includes many things. We are to work out our salvation by putting to death sin that lives within us. It is God's command that we identify and mortify sins in our lives. We are to work out our salvation in growing in our knowledge of the truth. We are to work out our own salvation in obedience to God's clear commands, like sharing our faith and serving in the church. In all these things, God really commands us to be obedient, and this means that when Jude exhorts us to, quote, contend for the faith, or to build ourselves up, he really intends our obedience as well. I suppose the point that I am making here is that salvation, being of the Lord and belonging solely to Him, does not negate our responsibility to walk in the truth that God has voluntarily given us. God saves, God keeps, and God glorifies. But this does not mean that we sit, or that we stare, and that we just simply wait. Our job is to see what is true and to walk in those truths to the best of our ability. But wait a moment. Didn't we say that we are unable to do what needs to be done to save ourselves? Yes. Naturally speaking, we cannot be obedient to God's word, and we have no hope of obedience to Paul's command. There must be more, and there is which is the point of the final devotion and hopefully the key that unlocks this truth for all of us. Point to Ponder, September 24th, Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. So, we have established two seemingly irreconcilable truths. First, we have stated quite clearly, I might add, that salvation is of the Lord. It is His work from start to finish. 
Second, we have seen that the Bible obviously expects us to faithfully walk in obedience to God's commands. How do we arrive at a solution that allows these two things to jive? The answer is found in the rest of the verse before us. You see, Paul exhorts the Philippians, and us by proxy, to obedience. They must really do something, but the verse doesn't end with a command. Instead, it reminds us that the very means by which we will be faithful to this command arise from God and not within our natural abilities. We are to work out our own salvation in faith that it is God working in us to accomplish His ordained outcomes. This is the key that unlocks the entire theological quandary. How do we understand biblical calls to obedience and reconcile them with God's grace alone and salvation? The answer is that God has provided us all that we need, and He empowers all that we do in our obedience. It is God that gives us the faith to embrace His commands and heed His warnings. It is God who supplies the spiritual power in the indwelling Holy Spirit to do that which He commands, and it is God who has designed salvation to unfold through our Spirit-empowered obedience. The point, then, is that the contradiction is only apparent and not actual. God does command us to obedience, but He also supplies us with all that we need for obedience. God does warn us of what will befall us if we are unfaithful, but He has also given us faith to really believe and heed these warnings, which means, by virtue of the fact that we trust He will deliver, a true believer would never run afoul of His word. Believer, your Christian life should be an active life, but if you see your progress and think, I've really done a great job, you've missed the truth that God is the one who is giving you all that you are using for progress. It is God alone who has saved you, thereby giving you the faith to believe. It is God alone who has chosen to reveal His Word, thereby giving you the commands to follow. It is God alone who is giving you His Spirit, thereby allowing you to rightly interpret the Word and giving you the energy necessary to fulfill those duties. This is why Jude pivots at the end of his letter back to God. While it is true that believers are to obey his warnings and admonitions, it is also true that God is the one who keeps and preserves us. So believer, contend for the faith, earnestly. But remember that as you are contending, he is the one supplying you with the grace and energy to do so, and therefore he deserves the glory, and we can contend in peace. So work out your salvation, contend for the faith, and put to death what is evil within you, and walk in a manner worthy of your calling, all the while repeating Jude's final words in a spirit of praise, adoration, and dependence. Quote, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen.